Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. And thank you for joining us for the final exam of our prep school bracket. I was about to say this is our graduation, but I guess you can have graduation and final exam on the same day. That's fine. I mean, in college, there's not a whole lot of time in between finals and graduation. It is weird to like have that scenario where you don't actually know if you've passed all the classes that you need, but you're still walking. Yep. It's almost as if many elements of our educational system are more performative for the parents and guardians of the students than actually, you know, about a person's achievements and milestones. But we are ta- <laughs> we are talking a problem about the problems of our educational system, although we really should do that more often. Yeah. We're talking about Dead Poet Society as well as Mona Lisa Smile. I mean, I think there's some problems with our educational system within these movies. Yes. But I have a not very smart thing to start with, though. Is Walton, the school from Dead Poet Society, meant to be like Walden from Thoreau? Like a reference, like Walden, but it hurts because it's like Welton, like it welts. The school's not Walton, it's Welton. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, like Welton. Is it like, it must be like, like Walden, but like with welts as of uh, a person being king? I don't... Is that a stretch? I think that's a bit of a stretch, but it's not so far of a stretch that it is improbable. In the same with that, I feel like J. Evans Pritchard, the name for that guy who wrote that very boring intro to that book, The Keating Hates, is probably a reference to uh, J. Alfred Prufrock, who is the narrator of a poem about being like indecisive, which is the opposite of what Keating's all about. Mm. Speaking of that very boring intro where it asks people to rank poems uh, on how artful versus how important they are, let's do that for these movies. Let's arbitrarily use that bad rating scale because I'm out of things to talk about. <laughs> These movies do not benefit from watching them four times in two months. They do not. I mean, very few movies do. So, I think as far as cultural relevance, Dead Poet Society is definitely pretty high up there. It has been parried numerous times. It's kind of the quintessential boarding school movie. Not even just boarding school movie, but like transformative teaching movie. Yeah. And so many films have gone on to emulate its trappings and or style. Mm-hmm. I will say that a lot of that is focused on some of the stuff you get within the first act. Not a lot of them that I've seen really get into the more parental stuff that we get in as the plot progresses. Mm-hmm. A lot of the films that are attempting to emulate Dead Poet Society are specifically trying to emulate Mr. Keating. Mm-hmm. He is definitely an important element but he is not the focal character and he is not whom the plot revolves around. And me doing this deep dive analysis, it makes me realize just how much the films that were emulating Dead Poets Society were taking away the wrong lessons. It's not quite like a fight club factor, but it's in that zone. I mean, I don't think anyone who is emulating Dead Poets Society is like a fascist so oh, no. i mean well i mean they might but not necessarily for that reason <laughs> yes yeah you can be two things i can see how like not quite getting it as part of this movie's appeal i guess how like how it stayed around because it's more complicated than inspiring teacher is I yes guess. yeah like i think you could argue that this movie is making arguments against keating's teaching style Yes, and we have heard those arguments from Mike Knoll uh, on this very podcast. Yeah. And they were strong arguments. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, like, it's kind of a need a bit of both. Yeah. 
and we've talked about how we would love to see this story retold in a longer format. Yeah. We've also talked about how we would like it to be explicitly queer because the subtext is very strong here. On Twitter, I talked about how I want the third season of this uh, CW adaption of the Boat Society to just be a whole retelling of Moby Dick. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what this movie needs. I mean, you also talked about Neil being, like, kidnapped by the Fae in season two. I want him to survive and also to be a fairy king. Anyway, <laughs> we've agreed that it has a great cultural significance, but how successfully does it achieve its artistic goals? I guess that's kind of the whole point of the podcast. It is kind of the whole point of the podcast, and... I mean, I think it is a very strong film artistically. I think the cinematography is interesting. It is dynamic when it needs to be. It's subtle when it needs to be. Mm -hmm. I will say that while that is true, a lot of the scenes are kind of just, we're pointing the camera at people while they talk in classrooms. There's There are a decent number of scenes that are just kind of very rote. I wish we had a little more variety, but also get that it's kind of hard to have visual variety in a school setting where they're in the same classroom for like half the plot. Yeah. And I mean, I think the script does attempt to try and get them out of that classroom as often as possible. Yeah. Like we see them out on the soccer field. We see them out in that courtyard. Keating is definitely one for change of scenery to help with the educational process. Yeah. And while there are a lot of scenes that are shot very samey, and even some of the Dead Poet Society meetings are shot very samey, there's some really well-done, interesting scenes. Keating's first class when they're at the trophy-slash-portrait case. Mm, it's so weird. I love it. Especially with Keating's background whispering over that. It's very well done. It feels like something I would see in a like made-for-TV movie that would air on BBC Two in the 70s. Like, that's the vibe I get from that scene, and I'm here for that. Mm-hmm. We also have the incredibly well-shot scene with Todd and his impromptu poem. Oh, God, it's really good. I love how disorienting the camera work is and how it gets you into the same headspace that Todd is in. That was my favorite scene this watch-through. I don't know what it was, but it just really got me this time. Mm -hmm. And then we've also talked about the scene that leads up to Neil's suicide as well. Yeah. And like those are all good and dynamic. I just wish we had a little bit more of that flair. Mm-hmm. Jumping over to Mona Lisa Smile, how successful is its artistry and how important is it? As far as importance, I'm torn because it's not very well remembered, especially compared to some of the other things that were on the bracket. But it was seated number two. Right. I think looking past how well remembered it was, it's definitely tackling some things that are more important and nuanced than in Dead Poet Society. Yes. So I think that on that level, it's maybe a little bit more like important. Yeah, I think it's tackling important things. I just wish it hadn't been so ignored. Yeah. And maybe just my perception of it being ignored. This film is nearly 20 years old, so things move on. But if you take a look at its cultural relevance compared to Dead Poet Society, it's nearly non-existent. Right. And like, maybe we just don't have the right kind of friend group or whatever for this, but I feel like this should come up occasionally at like movie watch parties, you know, like feel good chick flick nights or whatever and it doesn't like i've been to enough and has never like been mentioned yeah i spent three and a half years in art school i don't remember anyone ever mentioning this which is a pity mm -hmm. even if you take a look at other things on the bracket like fighting forester at least has the you're the man now dog meme yeah <laughs> that's true not just that meme but all of the things that that site would go on to spawn 
What's the most memeable thing from Mona Lisa's smile? I have a thought, but I want to hear your answer. Ah, oh, the most memeable. I think it's got to be, you know, companion. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. That's a good bit. Mine is the bit where Connie runs into her boyfriend's room and. Thank you. He just slams the door on their faces. I feel like you could really easily capture that for different things. Yes, that that is also a, a very great moment. Honestly, there needs to be more Connie stands in the world. Mm -hmm. My parents say my future is right on the horizon. Tell them that the horizon is an imaginary line that recedes as you approach it. Yeah, I'm sad that we have to rank this low on importance. Maybe that's what this podcast is really about. Finding things like this that people need to watch more. Mm -hmm. Like We've talked about that. We love finding the hidden gems, these forgotten films. And like maybe not, they're not necessarily forgotten, but they're not talked about, at least with people in our age bracket. Yeah. How about artistry? How successful is it in artistically rendering its goals? I think it does a fantastic job juggling its ensemble yeah. cast. And I think that's one of the film's strongest points is all of these characters feel incredibly well fleshed out and complex. When the screen time is divided, honestly, fairly unequally, we get a lot of time with Catherine. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. She's our point of view character. She's important. She's like a very compelling character, very well acted. Yeah. And then we get Betty and Joan are probably like tied for about second place as, as far as spotlight time. Oh, I was going to say um, probably Betty, Joan, and Giselle. Giselle has like a lot of one-liners, but as far as her own plots and things going on, we don't get a lot of that. You're right. A lot of her stuff is in other scenes being sad about not dating the worst man. There's that or like her kind of sniping at Betty or later on being supportive for Betty. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think there's probably more Connie scenes than there are just straight Giselle scenes. Yeah. Giselle is not a dynamic character in this film, and I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. She's still a great character, and I, I think when her posse's come around, best supporting actress for Maggie Gyllenhaal. Like, for sure. Very strong contender. As far as camera work, I think it's more subtle here than in Dead Poet Society. I still think there are some really great scenes. We've talked about a lot of the classroom scenes. Can't get enough of them. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because it's, it's the exact opposite in Dead Poet Society, where a lot of the classroom scenes, barring Todd's poem, are very bland. All of the scenes in the classroom are very interesting. I think part of that is that the classroom from Dead Poet Society is just like a rectangle and chairs and there's not a lot that's done or can be done to really change that up much as they try like the standing on the desks keating walking around and all that jazz whereas in mona lisa smile we get this very vertical classroom we have the projector we have the stage set up there's just a lot more room to create interesting angles and scenes and lighting composition that we really don't have in dead poets mm -hmm. and yeah like a lot of the other scenes are maybe not very dynamic visually but they have enough variation that, that helps mm-hmm Although, I noticed there are some outdoor scenes that seem a little bit washed out. It makes me wonder if like they didn't quite have the settings right on their camera to get all the color depth and information there. Mm -hmm. It's not a big deal. It's not like it doesn't ruin the movie or anything. It's just enough that I think that you could probably do a remaster of this to clean that up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Part of that may be due to a trend in film at the time. So in 2000, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou came out. Mm -hmm. And it was shot on film, but the whole 
film was uh, digitally retouched to get the colors that the Coen brothers wanted. Mm. And that became kind of Hollywood standard very quickly. Sure. And so that may be one of the reasons some of the outdoor scenes look odd. I can see that. This movie does generally have a fairly muted color tone. I can imagine a broad strokes approach to the color grading to make it all kind of these pleasant pastels unless it's seeing color for not that. Yeah. And while the film does take place over an entire year, there's multiple seasons, it was probably not shot that way, which leads to more of that sort of retouching that is a necessity. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That isn't necessarily to like completely excuse it. It's just this is a likely scenario for why it is the way that it is. Unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of information about the production of this film. Yeah. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, maybe. But we don't have it in front of us. Mm -hmm. So, shockingly, J.F. and Pritchard's method didn't really help us come to a conclusive answer about which is the better film, so... Shocking. Yeah. One thing I do want to say, a little notes. We talked about how these are both very white movies. I will say, I noticed there is a single black lady in the classroom Mona Lisa Smile. Just in the background there, she has no lines. And her existence there is somewhat questionable. I don't think desegregation had happened yet. I couldn't find any specifics for Wellesley College, but we were about a decade early for desegregation in Massachusetts. I'm not saying there couldn't have been exceptions. Who knows? But yeah. yeah. We're also like a decade out from the civil rights movement. Yeah, this is 53. Massachusetts was desegregated in the you know, 60s. I don't know if they were going for diversity points or if there was a history of black women at Wellesley that I couldn't find records of. Cool, if so. Yeah, it could also just be that they needed extras and there was no reason not to. And very few people would have noticed a black secondary character just walking around. Sure, but she's not really a secondary character. She doesn't have lines. Like, it's... It made me more annoyed than pleased because she's there, but we don't get any window into the experience of being the only black girl in this school, yeah. which I think that might have been interesting. Do you also have to issue a correction? Kristen Ritter does have one line in the film. Uh, I think she has two. She has one during the first class when they're talking about, I think, a Minoan sculpture, and she's the one to answer it. So we get a close-up of her face and her talking. Yeah, she has two lines in that scene. No. no. And <laughs> Which is my new Tinder profile. So she she does indeed have some lines, but not many. R- right. Well, they are on brand. Mm-hmm. But back to your point about these films being very white, that unfortunately kind of goes along with the prep school territory. Oh, for sure. And unfortunately, our two prominent examples of black characters in a prep school environment were Finding Forrester, which has its problems from a filmmaking perspective, but I think the character is interesting and well-developed. And from the research that I could find, many black individuals who have gone through similar experiences agree. Um, And then, oh, enough said. Yeah. And again, apologies for not realizing Thug should have been on this list until too late. It is not a huge complaint in comparing these two movies since they both have the same problem. I just, you know, would like to see more of that change in future yeah. films. When we have our next, I don't know, prep school renaissance. That I'm sure we're going to get any time. It's also odd that Emperor's Club has something over both these two films by having a prominent non-white character and then having a scene specifically about the increasing diversity of a prep school. 
You're not wrong. Okay, so this is going to get weird, but I've been sick for the last week, so I was on a decent number of pain meds when I was watching the Post Society this time around. I kind of fell asleep and just had a dream about present-day Welton having women there, and I hope that happened. I hope my dream was prophetic of this alternate timeline <laughs> in, in which this movie exists. I, I don't know. I think it'd be nice if Nolan got his way, you know? Mr. Nolan, it's for you. It's God. He says we should have girls at Welton. So another comparison factor, both of these movies start with a school ritual that we can presume happens every time around. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is the better ritual? Not in the way that, that it's shot, but in the effect it has on the ritual participants, the knocking at the door of every woman or the passing of the flame of knowledge by lighting the candle. Let's get liturgical. I think that's a interesting question. I definitely think that Mona Lisa's smile asks for more direct participation from the students as opposed to the administrators and teachers. Mm -hmm. And I think having roles and feeling part of it as a full participant as opposed to being present at this event is a important part of ritual. I agree. Although on the flip side, it has this message that education is a thing that is held within and the people who have control of the space you get to say if you do or do not get to come into that space he has to give you permission whereas the flame of knowledge anybody can pass on to anybody else that's very true i think that you're right about the participatory nature making it way more impactful people are probably going to remember that a lot more than just like lighting the candle the person next to them during the board opening speeches mm -hmm. to be fair we're also dealing with gendered rituals mm, true and for a significant portion of human history learning was specifically barred to women mm. and act of having to demand permission not necessarily demand permission but the act of having to break down a barrier mm. i think can definitely be empowering for um, many women who this may be their the you know the first uh, woman in their family to go to post-secondary school that's fair and a part of ritual theory that is often overlooked is the importance of reminding participants that they are enshrined in an ongoing tradition that kind of takes them out of linear time and into like a circular mythic time. Mm -hmm. I don't <clears throat> think that we can specifically dismiss Wellesley's ritual as gatekeepy. I do think we have to take it in the context of these are both gendered rituals. Mm -hmm. And I think that while we have a somewhat negative opinion of the faculty, staff, administration of Wellesley be just because of the storyline of the film I think that were they presented in a better light we'd probably be more hype about this because they're welcoming these women into this space yeah I also <laughs> think of the two school administrations that Wellesley has a better one compared to Welton that's true I will also say that the passing of the flame of knowledge fire is an inherently changing evolving and somewhat destructive thing whereas Welton is all about tradition and refusal to change, so it feels like an unapt metaphor for the knowledge they want to pass on. Mm -hmm. For the ritual at Wellesley, it's less about the actual knowledge that they are imparting and more about the opportunity. Yes, that makes sense to me. I think that's why the two are so very different, is because they're starting from very different points. But also that applies to a lot of the rest of the film. The Post Society is more about taking the opportunity to learn and being careful with what opportunities you embrace or throw away. Whereas Mona Lisa's pilot seems actually more invested in the act of learning and who gets to learn things. 
and you know who we regard as experts how do we trust them how do you think for yourself and not just parrot back what was taught to you Mm -hmm. i do think both of these films are attempting to instill to a certain extent a amount of critical thinking both in the students as well as in the audience Mm -hmm. and i appreciate that and i think that's one of the reasons that they've been so interesting to talk about on the podcast is because us analyzing these films is all about critical thinking. Right. And while they definitely have kind of surface level things they want you to learn that are very like hammered home, the underlying stuff and how valid those things that they're trying to hammer home are is definitely worth talking about. And I think it's definitely a healthy process for anybody trying to learn or trying to learn about learning. Mm-hmm. And isn't the point of the prep school bracket to be a bit educational? I mean, I hope most of the podcast is at least a little bit educational. That's fair. I loathe the term, but I I do hope that we are edutainment. I love that term, actually. (laughs) But then again, I grew up on PBS. (laughs) I was talking to people at work about how I grew up on PBS and then sneaking raunchy British comedies from the 70s that my parents didn't know about. Those are the two pillars of Young Jackson's media consumption. That's why I'm like this. (laughs) It it definitely is why you're like this. Whereas me, I was given near unfettered access to cable television. Mm, and that's why you're like that. And that's, why you, and that's how this podcast happened, honestly. Yes. Maybe it's because we've watched these so many times. I found myself going, I don't care about this scene in both of these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, for Dead Poets, it was some of the classes. Like, we get, I don't know, a good half dozen is like Keating teaching by being wacky mm-hmm. scenes. And some of them I was just like, eh, eh, on him doing Marlon Brando Shakespeare, which is Fun, but also like, eh. The walking around the courtyard scenes, eh. Anything where Knocked Over Street is the protagonist, I just like skipped. See, I am much more interested in the courtyard scene than I am in kicking the soccer balls. I think that mm, there yeah. is more of interest going on there, especially with Nuwanda refusing to walk and getting at that point. That's true. It's not that it's a bad scene, it's just that I've seen it enough times that I feel like I've gotten what I need from it right now. Yeah, like, there are some scenes that are, I don't want to say shallow, but they they have a pretty low conceptual ceiling. Like, there's not lots to get. Mm-hmm. And once you get there, there, the scene doesn't hold a lot of value to you. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. But I think there's also an element of the educational process. Sometimes you have a class that's sort of the foundation of the next part of the learning process, like mm-hmm. learning the basics of... Uh, an algebra thing before you get into like the more complex nitty-gritty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as someone who was uh, often described as a gifted student, there were plenty of times where I was just very bored in class. I'm like, yes, I get this. Can we please move on? Mm-hmm. Or like reading um, some Kipling in my post-colonial literature class because we needed to see what we were post-colonialing. Kim is a very slow book, and I understand why you read it, but I was like, no, get to the mantle of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> And then in Mona Lisa Smile, a lot of the scenes I didn't care about were the Bill Dunbar scenes. And unfortunately, a lot of like Giselle moments are cut. Because I'm like, I don't, I don't want them to date this shitty man. They could all be doing better. Mm-hmm. I've talked about my distaste for Bill. I don't think it's like a bad writing that Catherine gets involved with him. It's just very frustrating to watch because we all know it's going to end in tears. Right. I will say, I think that... There is a missed opportunity to do something more complicated with this character than just a shitty dude. Mm-hmm. Like, he could have been more directly involved with art things and had opinions about, I don't know, the romantics or 
brush strokes or whatever, where he doesn't really get into that. Mm-hmm. We could have had more conversations that directly relate to the overall learning about art and learning about learning, as opposed to mm-hmm. just the rough plot beats of any given episode of Friends. Honestly, I think an interesting direction to take Bill would have had him be involved with the administration and the board of governors to a certain extent yeah and having that complicate things when they break up and kind of have that be the final nail in the coffin for Catherine being able to teach the way that she wants to mm-hmm. or for her to expose him for sleeping with students that could have been a thing that you know or also like not being a combat veteran right there are definitely ways that Catherine could have done good by exposing Bill, and she did not. But I don't necessarily blame her for doing so, considering what happens to women nowadays when they speak out. Oh, for sure. Like, I'm not saying it's unrealistic that she didn't, but I kind of wish we had, like, a punch-in-the-air moment. Like, the burn book part of Cruel Intentions, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think that would have changed the focus of the ending of the narrative away from Catherine and the girls, and I think that that's where it should be. So I don't actually want that. Mm Mm-hmm. I understand why Bill's here. It's just there's definitely this lack of closure on that front, and it's frustrating. Yeah. Bill has been a reprehensible individual and does not really get any consequences other than no longer being able to see Catherine. Yeah. Which, I mean, big consequence, but... Yeah, like, Catherine's great, but it. I don't feel that he necessarily feels that way. Right. Like... We've seen that he kind of flits around from relationship to relationship. Right. There will be other people, and now that she's gone, he's free to pursue any student he wants. So, mm-hmm. who's worse, Bill Dunbar or Knocked Over Street? Oh, Bill Dunbar. <clears throat> okay, yeah. I like, say, yeah. Even if I said, I'm like, wait, no, 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 no. Bill's worse. Like, A, Knox does have the excuse of teenage boy. This is his first relationship and crush, and. Handling it poorly is not a condemnation of his entire character for the rest of his life. He just needs to be better. Yeah. Whereas Bill Dunbar has clearly been doing this for a while. These are not new character traits for him. And also he has more institutional power than Overstreet did. Mm -hmm. Well, that was an easy question to answer. (laughs) Yeah. No contest. Yeah. Very minor thing. Don't know if this is going to go anywhere. Okay. At the end, Elizabeth Warren is talking about how I've heard her called a quitter for leaving, an aimless wanderer. But not all who wander are aimless. Which is very close to that line from that one very well-known book, uh, (laughs) Not All Those Who Wander Are Lost, which The Fellowship of the Ring came out in 54, which is the same time as that scene is happening. I don't know if that's like an intentional reference or what. I don't... It seems weird. They haven't been like referencing classic literature or literature of the time. And also, even if they did, I feel like epic fantasy novel and Betty, these do not cross over here. What's happening? I can imagine Connie reading Lord of the Rings in a night, but I cannot imagine Betty knowing what an elf is. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I can very easily imagine Giselle having like a picture of Aragorn in her room, though. It'd be like Viggo Mortensen, I'm not sure how she got it, but I trust her. Let's talk about the way that I think Mona Lisa Smile definitely is better than Dead Poet Society in a very specific way. Okay. So Cameron is a think. Cameron is terrible. Don't like him. But this watch through, I understood why he was the way he was. He's very scared. He doesn't know any better. And he's being thrust into this, do new things, stand on desks, set fire to your books, hit babies with other babies teaching style um, <laughs> that he's not used to. And... 
we talked before about how not everyone learns in the same way. I think this is the opposite of how Cameron learns. Mm-hmm. I think he's very much a like slow building upon things way as opposed to a jolting out of your comfort zone way. Yeah. And his argument at the end when he tells them all to... And if you guys are smart, you will do exactly what I did and cooperate. They're not after us. We're the victims. Believe what you want, but I say let Keating fry. I mean, why ruin our lives? It seems like he's scared for himself, but also he doesn't want his friends to suffer for this thing that he sees a way out for them. Mm -hmm. And even though they're not always great friends to him because he's, you know, not that great of a person, I get it. Mm I can see how he's trying to do what he thinks is the right thing for the people he cares about. Mm. And I have a tiny bit of sympathy for him. But I think the movie doesn't. Whereas in Mona Lisa Smile, Betty is a shitlord for the whole movie. Like, she's very much the Catherine from Cruel Intentions Mm -hmm. for a lot of this. With, like, less of the, I don't know, a less ruthless Catherine. Yes. But at the end, all this horrible stuff has happened to her. And they'll give her the support that she needs to break through some of this programming and become... A less terrible person. Mm. And I think that offering people who are in this horrible toxic mindset that we see from the parents in the post side, the animal is a smile, and mm. some of the students, mm. offering them a way out is healthier than just saying, eh, they're fuckers. They get they get fucked. Mm. Fuck them. Like and it's also interesting because Cameron is definitely little C conservative. Mm-hmm. Betty is big C conservative. Her wedding had the Joneses about which the Keeping Up with the Joneses idiom was created. Mm-hmm. And she is specifically trying to prevent the erosion of what she sees as traditional values at the school. So it's really weird that between these two films, the little C conservative character is much less worthy of redemption than the big C conservative character is in Mona Lisa Smile. Mm-hmm. I think at least part of that is that Mona Lisa Smile is interested in the trajectory of the characters after the film, whereas Zebo Society is very much like, and then that was it. We don't know what's happening to them after that. Honestly, what's happening to them after the end of that scene at the end of that movie? They're all getting expelled. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's that thing where you can't expel everybody. Yeah, but we have no idea what sort of punishments that they're in for, what their rest of the time at Welton is going to be like, how they're going to continue to deal with the grief of losing their friend. Right. There's a lot more ambiguity. And that's fine. Like, I'm not saying, like ambiguity is not necessarily bad in storytelling, but it does mean that we don't get that. And this is how Cameron will grow. And this is how Todd will grow, etc. Yeah, we don't even know if they are going to continue meeting as the Dead Poet Society just sans Cameron because he's a fink. Yeah. I think that's part of it is Dead Poet Society is not really concerned with where its characters are after the events of the film. And so it doesn't need to redeem Cameron because it doesn't care. Whereas Mona Lisa smiles like, no, we want, we need to know where Betty goes. And with her arc in the film, it makes sense that she changes. Yeah, I think Mona Lisa Smile wants a much tidier bow on things, which is weird because I think Mona Lisa Smile is much more about like interpreting things for yourself, whereas Dead Poet Society kind of has a like, and this is what you should be thinking approach, but it has an open ending, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Another thing I want to touch on, this is mostly focused on Mona Lisa Smile. I noticed this a number of watch ago, there just hasn't been a good time to bring it up on the podcast, but we never see women driving in Mona Lisa Smile. Don't we? No. So Catherine arrives to the area by train. So she doesn't have a vehicle. Makes sense. And so she's like taxied around whatnot. 
Tommy is driving when we see Joan return from their date and like she's barely made it in by curfew. Catherine is again taking a taxi out of the city towards the airport at the end of the film. And there are a few other scenes where we see people like driving around and whatnot, but it's never a woman. Huh, interesting. And I'm not sure whether that was historically accurate, if it was specifically chosen to make the environment feel more oppressive to women, or whether it's maybe a class thing where, you know, these are all women who are enrolled in a prestigious university. There's definitely this sense that they are of the upper classes and the upper classes tend not to do menial tasks like driving themselves around. I can imagine a lesser movie having it be like a oh she drives thing that like Catherine would show up driving her own car and everybody's like scandalized by that and there would be a scene where she teaches Joan how to drive or whatever or like a a comedy scene of Connie not really getting how six shifts work I mean I was more thinking like I want the cut scenes where Giselle's riding a motorcycle because that definitely seems like Giselle oh that is a 100% Giselle thing (laughs) wow now I'm sad I don't have that Thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. yeah, that is a good notice. I hadn't picked up on that. I think that's an interesting bit of filmmaking that I think is a little bit more ambiguous. And I'm into trying to figure out why it's like that. Yeah, and I like that there are multiple explanations for why it's the case, whether they were going for historic accuracy or whether it's a interesting anachronism mm-hmm. that is specifically designed to give the audience a feel for the setting of the film or whether it's has nothing to do with oppressing women necessarily and it's more of a class thing or like we don't get many scenes with cars so it makes sense that none of our main characters are driving them to a certain extent sure it's it's just because of the gender politics of this film it is very easy for me to make that leap we see a few people driving none of them are women if it was a particular intentional choice to make it a thing it doesn't really come up. The film doesn't focus on it. Mm. And there might be like a cut scene or like a, a few cut scenes where that was kind of a, a minor running theme they, they decided to remove for time, which makes sense. It's not, it's not vital to the plot, but it doesn't seem like it's commented on enough for me to believe that in the film as it stands, it was like an important decision. Mm-hmm. But I mean, maybe it was just a, a sort of subtle thing that we didn't notice because there's like other stuff that women were, were not doing that we didn't pick up on. Mm-hmm. I will say, I know enough friends who work in like social work and related fields who will talk to old women whose husbands have died and they're like, I don't know how to get around anymore. I never learned how to drive. My husband just took me everywhere. And it's wild to me that we are still living in a time where where that's still kind of a thing. I mean, let's see. This is 53, so that was roughly 70 years ago. Yeah. One tiny thing. I like that Keating's whole first thing is about like, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. And then... A lot of the fairies have rosebuds in their costumes in Midsummer. Mm-hmm. That was a good like little bookend thing. Even if you complained mm. about those costumes last episode. I did. They're bad costumes, <laughs> but they did a good thing with them. Anyway, let's get into our alignment charts. Where do you want to start? Well, first we should probably do pretentious school name. Oh, yeah. I mean, Welton, we've already established, you know, maybe not that impressive, although it might be named after Walden. There's Welton and there's Wellesley. They are incredibly similar which is funny since these two films are also incredibly similar <laughs> hogwarts school for welton and wellesley <laughs> uh and now i'm thinking about clorthos hogwarts and clorthos clorthos and hogwarts they go hand in hand the best top two wizarding schools there are it's a key and peel skit about a inner city oh yes school. yes i've seen that it's very good 
I'm gonna stick to my guns and say that Welton is a, a Walden reference, which is incredibly pretentious. So, I mean, if we are going that route, I would agree with you, but we also do have Wellesley, which is a actual real place. Right, but is it pretentious to exist? I do think it is slightly pretentious for the filmmakers to specifically decide to use a real college where it did not necessarily need to. That's fair. I'll allow that. To, to give some, like, credence and prestige to it. Like, that definitely feels pretentious. That's true. And because unless we've missed something, this isn't really based on, like, real events or people. So they could easily have had, like, it be Bellsley or whatever mm-hmm. and been fine. That's a stupid name. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess I'll agree that Wellesley's more pretentious, which right. makes Wellesley the most pretentious uh, school name ever. Since we didn't do it as we did our alignment chart because it was too much work. Yeah. But speaking of that alignment chart, we have at long last most nerd, most prep, most goth, and most jock. Yep. This is the final round. Yeah. This is the playoffs, as it were. Let's actually start with prep this time. Okay. Well, we have Catherine from Cruel Intentions and Charlie from School Ties. I mean, we talked about this last week. Yeah, it's Catherine. It's Catherine. Charlie, he doesn't have the ambition that Catherine does. Yeah, he's very much coasting. Like, he's letting his, I don't know, prep bloodline carry him, whereas Catherine both rejects her prep bloodline, but also is power leveling Mm -hmm. to strain that metaphor further, which is actually a very interesting dynamic. Catherine is distinctly the most prep. Both of these are backbiting villains who the crux of the tension revolves around for the film but Catherine is definitely this stronger villain and she has more control over the situation yes and honestly had it not been for her stepbrother keeping that journal she would have gotten away with everything oh for sure she would have continued to become this Disney villain in Pearls. Mm-hmm. All right, where do we want to go next? Well, we talked about Disney villains. Let's talk about um, War and Peace versus Cassandra. Most goth. It's weird because, like, War and Peace isn't all that goth. He's just kind of coasted by. And Cassandra is more punk than goth. But we've also the same thing. I think that War and Peace is definitely more prone to melancholy than Cassandra is, That's though. true. She's more phlegmatic. Yes. And like, I think that melancholy is definitely a big part of goth. So I'm honestly leaning towards War and Peace. Yeah, I'll allow it. So good job, War and Peace. There are none more goth. Which actually makes me really happy because I believe I got none more goth from people talking about Warren Worthington III. <laughs> For most nerd, we have Deepak from... Fuck, what's it called? I deleted all my knowledge about this movie. Emperor's Club. Emperor's Club. Deepak from Emperor's Club versus literally Sherlock Holmes. Ah. <sighs> This is tough because I want to give it to Deepak, but I know deep down it, it's got to be Sherlock Holmes. I feel like it has to be Sherlock Holmes. He's such a nerd that he publishes things that nobody reads. <laughs> he's nerdy and he's not even popular with it. Yeah. Deepak had a good run. Deepak was the best thing about that crappy movie. Genuinely an interesting character, and I'm sad that he doesn't get to do more things. He gets to be a character within the Dead Poet Society of the CWU. <laughs> And lastly, we have Duke Orsina versus David. So we have Brendan Fraser, Teen Heartthrob of the 90s, versus Channing Tatum, Teen Heartthrob of the noughties. <laughs> Channing Tatum would have been great in a Mummy reboot. <laughs> Not good, but great. <laughs> no! Both of them play football as a big part of their like character. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that Duke Orsina is definitely the more stereotypical jock, though. I think he typifies what we are thinking of more, whereas David has other qualities. 
But David is more willing to fight a man, whereas Duke Orsina has a softer side that comes out a lot faster. That's true. I, I'm not saying that jocks and fights are inherently the same thing, but I think that there is a element of hypermasculinity inherent in jockness that I think David has more of. Or at least David is working harder on maintaining. Mm-hmm. This is also complicated by the fact that as far as settings of the film, there's a big time gap. Yeah. And fighting was much more acceptable in David's time than it is in Duke Orsina's. That's true. And I guess Duke Orsina is very literally using sports as a metaphor for physical aggression because you can't have like people dueling for honor in the modern day, <laughs> mm-hmm. sadly. This is actually the hardest bout, honestly. It really is. Can we tie? We are the gods of this podcast. We can just change the rules if we want to. Fuck it. I mean, we could. We could also leave it to the audience to vote. That's fair. Yeah, let's leave it to the audience. I'm into that. Probably a few hours after this episode goes live, we'll post a poll on Twitter and Facebook. And you can choose who you feel is the more jock character. David Green from School Ties or Duke Orsina from She's the Man. Ah, good. There's one last alignment sorting that we have to get to, though. Where do we fall on the golf prep nerd jock scale? (sighs) That is interesting. So I am probably somewhere in between nerd and goth. I hung out with the goths in high school and... You had a strong punk phase when you were younger. Yes. So I'm definitely somewhere in that quadrant. Mm -hmm. Where do I fall? I'm bad at sorting myself with stuff. I need other people to tell me things. Mm -hmm. There's definitely uh, some preppiness about you. I'll allow that. In like a poppy more sense. (laughs) Wow, okay. You're not wrong. (laughs) Like... You always you always hate when I read you, but you are like you ask me to. I know. I don't know what's up with my psychology. It's very bad. It's very bad. You are right. I just wish that we're not so. So I think between prep and goth, you probably lean more prep. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, considering you're like decorating. Yeah, it's true. With probably a bit of nerd. I mean, you've heard me talk about like Moby Dick and things. <laughs> yes. I think the important thing is no one here is a jock. No, not really. Yeah. At least our podcast personas are not jockish. Yes. Actually, I'm going to move you a little more nerd on the like place I wrote it down on my sheet because I watched you repair that microphone in front of me earlier today. <laughs> That's fair. You're like, ah, fuck, I got this. <laughs> what is the better film of these two? And this is a hard competition here. It is a hard one. I like both of these movies a lot. They're both doing really good things and I'm... I mean, yeah, both, I, of them. both of these are definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen them. And honestly, if you're listening to this episode and haven't seen them, like, go do that. <laughs> so, like, whichever we vote for, the other one shouldn't feel bad at all about, like, yeah. not winning. And I mean, we usually say that by the time we get to the finals of this. Yeah, it's like when you're watching a competition show and, like, all the chaffs eliminate, and you, like, you want to stop at, like, episode three from the end so everybody can go home happy. Yeah, like, how everyone gets towards the end of a series of The Great British Bake Off. Exactly. I talked before about how the, the mercy for Betty was really important to me as part of Mona Lisa's Smile, and I think that's why I'm going to give it my vote. I honestly agree. I think that Mona Lisa Smile's strong ensemble cast, the willingness to give Betty redemption, and just having more complexity in what it's trying to do push it above dead poet society for me i think a lot of the reason that dead poet society is so well remembered is in part due to robin williams performance and it's a great performance oh yeah 
I can't believe that Robin Williams made a thing good. <laughs> but I do think that were it not for his performance, the film would not be as well remembered as it is. Mm -hmm. Even though it is very good. Yeah, and even though a lot of the younger actors are doing a great job. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mona Lisa Smile, I think, has a lot of that going for it, and it has just a tiny bit more heart. So, congrats, Mona Lisa Smile. You get to be hung up in the Hall of Fame, and Dead Post Society has to conclude that last meeting. I was going to say carpe diem another day. Uh, carpe see you later. <laughs> that doesn't work at all. No. Where's Mike Knoll for the great carpe uh, diem puns? Well, releasing new episodes of The Equalizers again. Yeah, congrats, y'all. If you want to go listen to Tudor's My Car or Assassin's Creed Black Flag, you can go do that at The Equalizers. As much as I love the name Tudor's My Car, I believe the episode's true title is Bandershippy. <laughs> it is. Sorry. <laughs> but that gives you no context for what you're about to get involved in. Especially if you, like me, have not seen Dude's Where's My Car. I recommend it, but with lots of alcohol. <laughs> well, luckily, I'm still sick, and therefore shouldn't have any alcohol because it weakens your immune system, so I guess I can't watch it. Oh no, what a pity. <laughs> I also can't recommend the Assassin's Creed movie. Yikes. Games are pretty good, though. Oh yeah, the games are wonderful. Yeah. Fantastic series. Mm -hmm. This is a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And we are almost done with the prep school bracket. This is the final episode, but we do have a couple extracurriculars. Mm -hmm. Specifically, as we've mentioned before, a two-part episode on all eight Harry Potter films. Which we have recorded half of. Wow, oh boy, there's so much movie. Yes. If you want to do a rewatch, now's a great time. You're all quarantined anyway. <laughs> Go watch movies about living in a closet. <laughs> Covered. Under the stairs. Yes. Unless you're implying one of the characters is gay. No. <laughs> I don't wish that on anybody in J.K. Rowling's oeuvre. Fair enough. Although I guess we've got Ezra Miller, so thanks for that. Yeah, so the first part of that should be coming out next week, followed by the week after. I do think we're probably going to take a little bit of a break afterwards. But after that, you can expect from us a new bracket, mm -hmm. which will be movies on a boat. We finally finished the alignment chart of brackets with our comic book movies, our classic movie monster movies, our sports movies, and the prep school movies. So we can just do whatever we want now. We're free. We don't have to have a theme. So we're just going off to sea. We are setting about to see the watery part of the world. Summer is right around the corner. And as you all know, Jackson has a love of boats. <laughs> I hate to tell you this, a lot of these movies are not summer movies. These are going to be like, oh, it's cold and wet and we all have jackets and our lives are difficult and there are no women here. Although Speed 2 Cruise Control is on there. <laughs> <laughs> Speed 2 Cruise Control is a perfect summer movie. It has everything you need. Sandra Bullock. Keanu Reeves. No, he's not in that one. Really? Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> Keanu Reeves did not come back for that one because he was more sensible. It's just Sandra Bullock on a boat. Oh... Fun. Anyway, if you want to make sure to catch all that weird assortment of things we just talked about, feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere you catch your pods. Mm -hmm. Once again, this has been the Retreat of Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.